And now, broadcasting from a two-person hot tub, high atop the Butterfield Park water tower, it's the E-Town Lowdown, created by Robbie and Rick. And now, your handsome hosts, PK and Rick. Welcome to another special edition of the E-Town Lowdown COVID-19 pandemic. Today is Tuesday, December 8th, 2020. I have my good friend, Pamela Dunley, the president and CEO of Elmhurst Memorial Hospital on the line. How are you today, Pam? I'm very good, and I know that uh, we are very lucky that we're having some nice weather for December, um, and I am very thankful for the few things there are to be thankful for. We have uh, 50s uh, forecast here the next couple days, so that's uh, unseasonably warm for nearly the middle of December. I guess we're still at the beginning, but it seems like we, uh, we're, we're approaching uh, the holidays very quickly, aren't we? We are, and they'll be here before we know it. Yes, they certainly will, and I think uh, uh, Hanukkah starts this week, I think on the 10th, as I recall. So, yeah, we're, we're going to be into the holidays here soon. So can you give us a quick update on uh, patient census as it relates to COVID at the hospital? Absolutely. So, um, actually, we have a little bit of good news here at Elmhurst. Last time we spoke, we had 68 positive inpatients, and um, today we have 60 positive inpatients. So we are uh, going in the right direction. Last time we had four that were on ventilation. Uh, This time we have six, so that's not as good a news, but at least the number of patients is down. And um, last time there were four awaiting results, and uh, this time there are five. And we have had, last time there were 119 deaths. This week there's 124 deaths, so we have had five additional deaths since last week. DuPage County went from 45,446 to 51,051, and they went from 790 deaths to 850 deaths. And the state of Illinois went from... 728,000 positive patients to 798,000 positive patients, and deaths went from 13,015 to 14,234. So death seems to be increasing. We had, um, for a while, had less deaths happening. Like, in the beginning, we had a lot of deaths, and it slowed down, and now deaths are starting up again. And I cannot tell you why that is, since we do have treatments available. I would have expected that not to start going back up again, but maybe it's just because of the volume of people. Um, that's why the deaths are going up. We did have a couple of nice things. So um, our, the number of discharges went from 853 to, as of yesterday, we had our 1,000th discharge and we celebrated and and everybody kind of greeted the patient as he was being wheeled out of the hospital and thanked him and and wished him health in his discharge as our 1,000th discharge patient. And right now, as of today, we've had 1,015 discharge patients. And the recovery rate for the state of Illinois remains at 97%. So we're very consistent in our recovery rate. So those are good things. Just since yesterday, you've had another 15 discharged, so they're they're coming and going quickly, aren't they? They are, and our length of stay is much shorter. So, it, you know, when, in the beginning, in, the, in um, March, April, and May, lengths of stay of patients who came in with COVID would be anywhere from a week to three, four weeks. Now, 
you know, people are leaving fairly quickly, four days, five days. So it's, it's nice to see that people are not needing quite as much hospitalization, and we are not needing as many ventilators or as many people in our intensive care, which is very nice. I want to ask you, uh, as I always do, about testing. But in particular, I know that, you know, I asked you a lot previously about saliva tests uh, and whether or not we'd get those here in our community soon. And I kind of got the impression that those might not be quite as accurate as the other tests. What are your what are your thoughts on those tests and whether or not we will get those easy saliva tests? Um, it's not that they're not as accurate, they're not as sensitive. So the other tests are more sensitive, and so they pick up things at a higher rate. Um, if the, the other the saliva tests, if they pick things up, are accurate. It's just not as sensitive to um, catching things. So currently right now we are receiving testing agents for all four of our COVID testing platforms. Um, you know, our, our reference labs, ARUP and Quest continue to help us. So we continue to do about up to 1200 COVID molecular tests per day. And we went live yesterday with a new type of COVID test. The one that I had talked about is the Abbott Binex Now antigen test. And that one, um, is a very rapid test. It uh, instead of it being molecular, uh, it, what it does is it um, the Binex now identifies a protein that um, tells you if it's, if you're positive, and that and that's a, a really really easy test to run. And it we know within 15 minutes if somebody is uh, positive or not with that test. And these these tests all require the swab up and in, uh, into the brain matter practically. Uh, not into the brain matter, no. It, it was only in the beginning that we had to go really high and, and they were very uncomfortable. All the swabbing tests now don't go quite that high anymore. They're, they're much more comfortable. Well, that's great. Then I, In that case, I'm not going to bug you about the saliva tests anymore because uh, <laughs> that was the big objection that people had is that it was very, very uncomfortable. And uh, I personally haven't had one, so I haven't had to experience it, but I was not looking forward to it. And hopefully I'll never have to have one. So thank you. That's good news. <laughs> well, actually, I've had two of them, and, I, and it, it's not that uncomfortable. It does sting a little bit, but it's not uncomfortable, and it doesn't go up in your brain, so you do not feel like someone's attacking you. <laughs> okay, good. doesn't feel like you just had a big chocolate shake and you drank it too quickly or something like that, huh? No, no, no. A brain freeze. Oh, a few weeks ago, there were a lot of folks that feared that there might be a, a really large COVID spike as a result of the upcoming holidays, and in particular Thanksgiving, which has already passed. Does it appear that there is or was a spike as a result of Thanksgiving, or is it too soon to tell? No, we should be starting to see it now. We have seen a slight increase in terms of uh, positive people, but they're not being hospitalized, so it's more in the outpatient cases. So just a slight increase, but not to the extent that we anticipated. You know, we're not totally out of the woods yet, um, but I don't think it, it has been as bad as we thought it might be. We're hoping that the, um, the Christmas holidays do not bring us increased COVID patients because if we make it through Thanksgiving and it doesn't show the amount of increase we thought we would have, I'm sure people will not trust us and they will not listen at Christmas time. <laughs> Go back to their old habits, right? That's what you're afraid yeah, of. That's what I'm afraid of. Early on and, you know, maybe six, seven months ago, there was a lot of talk about 
how the weather might affect uh, the the uh, trans the uh, transferability, I guess, of the of the virus. Um, people catching it more in cooler weather than in warm weather. Does that appear to be the case? And might some of the recent spikes be as a result of cooler weather in October and November? Well, what we're thinking is it's the cooler weather driving people into enclosed environments rather than being out in fresh air. And that when you're in an enclosed environment, there is a higher likelihood of spreading uh, the disease than if you're outside and getting together. So that's, it's not really about how cold it is outside, but the environment that you're in, you know, being closed in and not having great ventilation. You've mentioned some cases where patients had been released from the hospital and uh, they had basically recovered from a serious bout of, of COVID and that they had problems later on with blood clots that uh, were either life-threatening or really threatened their health. Are you still seeing that? And if so, have you learned anything in the medical community about how to watch out for that and avoid that in the future? Well, we, we have learned that you have to watch um, people, the chance of blood cuts in people and look for risk factors. We, I don't think we realized in the very beginning that that was going to be a side effect, but once we did uh, recognize that, we were looking at what kinds of medications people needed to be on to make sure that they didn't have blood clots. So, yes, we, we, we continue to learn and monitor all of the different symptoms that happen. Um, it's just odd that there's so many different symptoms on different patients. It's not the same on anybody. I um. I had a question from somebody who listens to the uh, podcast uh, who had um, lost uh, the sense of taste and smell, tested positive for COVID, and starting to get the, the sense of taste and smell back, had no other symptoms, no fever. When can a patient like that stop isolating? Well, right now, what they're saying is 10 days, that you have to, from the first onset of symptoms, you need to isolate yourself for 10 days. You know, it, a lot of times, people who have very little symptoms or no symptoms um, after 10 days can go back out into the public. You still want to be careful and wear your mask and not get close to people, but um, they've shortened it from 14 days to 10 days. I think part of the... Um the guidance is that their symptoms need to be improved, right? Yes, they need to be improved. But some people, like you said, some people don't have many symptoms at all. So, you know, what does improved mean? Right. That's that's the big unknown is how much improvement do you need to have? If you never had a fever, but you have this little symptom and it's, it's a little bit better, but it's not back to normal, I guess it's kind of a, a gray area, isn't it? Well, that's why they say wait 10 days, and then after that, as long as you're not getting worse and, you're, and you go out in public, just make sure you wear your mask and stay away from people. I know the hospital had, had allowed visitors or care partners, I think you called them, for patients um, many, many months ago, and then it seems like you, you, you had to change the rules a little bit because not everybody was following the rules. What are the current rules as it relates to visitors or care partners for patients? Yes, we, um, for us, we think it's really important to have care partners involved in care, but because of the increase in number of people who had COVID, we had to go back to not having any COVID patients have visitors, and, um, and non-COVID patients can only have one care partner 
uh, while they're here at the hospital. Nobody can spend the night. Um, and, and one of the issues, there's a couple things that was happening. When we did allow two care partners coming in, people were not following the rules. They were not wearing their masks. They were going places that they shouldn't be going. And the staff are too busy trying to take care of patients and keep everybody safe that they can't worry about trying to monitor um, visitors in the building. So we had to go back to only having one care partner. And we asked if anybody's coming and they are a care partner, please follow the rules because they're only there for the safety of the patients and the staff so that we can be here to take care of your loved one. Uh, you had mentioned uh, the last few weeks that there were some staff positions you're trying to fill and you had some shortages in certain areas. So I'd like to like for you, if you would, to give us an update on, on what types of positions you're still looking for and then ask, do you have any staff shortages as a result of positive COVID tests or exposure to COVID on your staff? Well, we do occasionally have staff that are positive, um, and so then they do have to t stay away just like anybody else until they're fully recovered and not symptomatic anymore. But we haven't been short-staffed. We, we've been able to uh, to staff the hospital. We've used all of the tricks in the trade, like paying extra incentives for working shifts, using agency staff, um, moving people from one site to another as long as they're qualified to work in an area. We've actually been hiring a lot of people. Our, our nurse residents, 30 of them, um, completed their their one-year nurse residency program, so now they're or the first four months, and now they're on their units for the rest of the year. So they're now counted in the staffing. We hired at, um, on November 30th for Elmhurst to know alone, we had 37 new hires. 26 of those were nurses and PCTs for the hospital. And then the other were other positions within the hospital. Right now we continue to hire people, um, RNs, patient care techs, medical assistants, Sitter, patient sitters, uh, those are the primary roles that we're hiring right now. I think we've been hiring uh, people to help out with screenings and um, checking people in. So, you know, if anybody's interested in a job, look online and, um, and see if we have one available. I know that we'll even hire seasonal people. Or So if, like, a waitress isn't able to get a job right now, we might be able to hire you into our food service just for seasonal, and then when you're ready to go back to your regular job, that's fine too. Um, I want to hit you on vaccines again, and I know you, there, a lot of the information <laughs> is changing day by day, and you you may not have a lot of the answers, but do you have any idea, you know, more so than you did last week, about when you may receive the first vaccines at the hospital? Uh, we're hoping that we'll know more um, by this Friday. We're hoping by next week we'll have them. That's our goal. Uh, I think they're coming into Loyola first for distribution. They're, they're our main source um, for our area, our area regional hospitals, get things out of Loyola. So I think they're going to be distributing. So we're hoping that we'll be in that next week. And it'll be the um, healthcare workers that get vaccinated first. And are the early indications that there will be enough vaccine for all the healthcare workers in the area, or is that still to be decided? Oh, there's not going to be enough for all the all the healthcare workers right away. You know, hopefully more will get released, and um, there'll be the different manufacturers will be able to all get approval to come to be able to distribute the vaccine. We will just 
distribute to our employees whatever vaccine we get. So if we get two different kinds, we'll be administering both of them. Uh, we're, we're, we actually have a huge team working on how to store the vaccines, how to deliver the vaccines. There's a lot of um, data that has to be kept for each vaccine that's given and given to the state. So we have to have all this stuff in place and, re and ready to go. And the vaccine is a two-step process. So it's, you know, it's you get the vaccine and then you have to come back in, in a certain amount of time and get the next vaccine. So we got to make sure that happens because it doesn't help you to get one and not the other one. And then we have to see you again a period time after that to evaluate how you did so that we can input that data for the state to have data as well. So it's very complicated. It's not easy. It's taking a lot of people to work on this, but um, for us it's really important. And we want to make sure that our staff, we are not mandating our staff to take the vaccine, but we are highly encouraging. And we do have a goal of wanting to get 100% of our staff vaccinated, and we're hoping they all want that as well. I know that the uh, news has uh, been reporting what the priority list would look like, obviously with healthcare workers at the very top. Do you have any official information about other groups that will be high priorities or just what you see in the news? And when you say healthcare workers, we have to prioritize our healthcare workers as well because we're not going to have enough to cover all of our staff. So we're prioritizing people who work with COVID patients, people who have contact with COVID patients, uh, people in key positions, and then we'll be adding it all the rest of our staff. But also it's going to be uh, the vulnerable seniors, particularly in congregate living situations, um, and then those who are high risk. There, we still don't know from the CDC yet about people who are pregnant, whether they should get it, or people who are immunocompromised, whether they should get it, or if you've already had COVID, whether you should get it or not. So we're still waiting some more clarification from the CDC. I've seen on some of the lists, and obviously you don't have the answer yet, but that um, uh, other essential workers will be prioritized ahead of folks who are non-essential workers. Isn't that putting a lot of burden on local hospitals to figure out who's an essential worker and who's not when they have nothing to do with the hospital as a they're not an employee, in other words? We're going to get a list, and we're going to have to – it's because all these records we have to keep when we do give a vaccine – it's being very highly regulated. Uh, so, yes, it is, it's going to be a lot of pressure, but it is necessary that we keep all of this data and, or we won't be allowed to have the vaccines and give the vaccines. So that's, that's, and, you know, I understand it because you want to make sure that the people who are at the greatest risk that, of things we want to keep going, that those people have the vaccines. Do you think that there's any chance that amateur podcasters would be considered essential workers? <laughs> You're always an essential worker to me. You're getting information out there to the public. <laughs> well, thank you. That that was tongue-in-cheek. Um, I noticed this past week that the CDC changed its guidance on folks who are exposed to individuals that test positive. Uh, that The quarantine period's been reduced. Can you explain how that's changed? Yes. They, um, originally, they wanted you to quarantine for 14 days, and then... Um, make sure well it was originally it was seven days plus 10 days post having a fever and so it ended up 14 days and now they've lowered it and they've lowered it because of, of for several reasons number one there's no clear science so um 
you know, to continue to mandate people doing it for 14 days when it's impacting, you know, people's livelihoods, people's, uh, and people aren't following it. They want to at least make sure that people are doing the, the minimum amount of quarantine that will help keep this under control. So it, it went back, it went down to the 10 days if you are asymptomatic or seven days after you have had contact with somebody who's symptom, who is symptomatic and you have a negative viral test. So let's say you, you um, were in close contact with somebody who was positive with COVID, but you aren't having any symptoms. If you get a test around five to seven days after your contact and that's negative, then you can not be quarantined. But if you are in close contact and you don't get tested, then they say you have to wait 10 days. Okay, so that, that's a little looser than it was before, I guess. Um, it is looser. I can't imagine the, the uh, difficulty in planning for these vaccinations because of the sheer number of vaccinations that local hospitals like yours will be responsible for administering. And, you know, in addition to what you've already mentioned, how to store the vaccine and how to decide who's going to get it, are there a lot of other supplies that you need, as in syringes and things like that, that need to go along with this that most of us wouldn't even think about? Yes, and it's not just the supplies. It's, you know, so you're, it's the storage, the certain temperature, and then making sure you you give the vaccine with a certain amount of time after it is been warmed because you're not going to give it frozen. You're going to give it warmed and you have to mix it a, pers- uh, a specific way. And the person who is giving the vaccine, there is some very specific training that the, st- that the government is requiring that we have to document how they were trained so that they know that the vaccine is being given exactly as it was given in the in the testing to make sure that it is done in a way that will make it effective. And so we have to train all the staff that's going to give the vaccines and make sure we document that and, and get that all, all that information to the state before they can even give a vaccine. You know, we're good at giving vaccines. We've always given lots of vaccines. But this particular vaccine is taking a lot more because of all the documentation requirements, the extra uh, scrutiny that's happening with it, plus the it being the two-step process and the third step of reviewing the outcomes and all of that having to be documented. So it's, it is a very um, time-consuming project, but very important, and we're very committed to make sure that it is done well. You had mentioned a couple weeks ago that you were looking at um, off-site locations to administer vaccinations. Are you still looking at that, and uh, do you have any more to report on that? Yes, we are looking at it. It's not finalized yet. I had originally said that we might potentially be doing swabbing or vaccines at the at our business office complex in North Elmhurst. We are not going to do it there. We are looking at a site in um, Downers Grove that's kind of uh, off Butterfield Road, so not too far from the Elmhurst um, service area and not too far from the Naperville service area, so a combined site. We're hoping that we can get that site approved as a vaccination site because we can't just give a vaccination wherever we want to. We have to have approval and, and um, through the government when we 
sending all of our paperwork to allow us to have that site, so we're trying to get that approved right now. We have approval at Elmhurst Hospital and approval at Edward Hospital, so we're hoping to get an off-site location approved, and we're hoping to get that up and running by the end of December. You have um, mentioned uh, many times how people's mental health in a lot of cases has been adversely affected by the pandemic. So my question is, do you do you still see high volumes of patients higher than normal at Linden Oaks, which is your mental health hospital? Well, we're seeing uh, higher volumes in the adults and the adolescent volumes are much higher. And I think that's because of the stress with adolescents is really high. Uh, our geriatric psychiatric patients are lower. And I think that's because they're fearful of seeking any treatment and they'd rather shelter in place and not go out. And as long as they're healthy, that's great to keep them healthy. I'm hoping they're not staying home when they're not healthy because that's not necessarily good. I, I don't know how many things I've heard in the news in terms of suicides lately. And, um, you know, that's that scares me because it tells me people are not feeling safe to reach out for treatment. But we are seeing very high volumes, particularly in our adolescents right now. Uh, one, one last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it's more of a plug for uh, Love Lights fundraiser again, and then also give us a recap on how the uh, – Reindeer House Drive went. Oh, thank you so much for doing this. So the annual Love Lights program, which started on December 2nd, which is when we lit the garden in front of Elmhurst Hospital, and that is in honor all those lights of uh, anybody who you want to honor or someone who passed away in your life and that you want to recognize. So um, because of COVID, we didn't do the lighting ceremony in person. Usually it's a very nice ceremony. But we are still accepting $25 donations uh, from anybody in the community who wants to recognize somebody that's been good to them, a caregiver, a volunteer, a physician, a special person, or someone who has passed away. I, as I've said before, love to do it to remember my father, and this year it will be my mother. We will take um, all of those in the month of December, and then it would be all, any name that you have bought a donation, a $25 donation for, will be in the December 31st issue of the Elmhurst Independent. And so the Love Light donation, you can go to online, www.eehealth.org forward slash love dash lights. Or you can call Elmhurst Memorial Hospital Foundation at 331-221-0388. So you have a few more weeks to be able to get that money in so that it can be in the Elmhurst Independent. Your, the name of the person you care about will be recognized there. And then the Reindeer uh, House Drive, thank you to everybody who had their homes decorated or who helped decorate those homes. It was last week. It was on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. I did the Wednesday drive. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, you know, it was the exteriors, and then some people you could go up and look in their windows. Um, but a bunch of floors decorated and all the lights, and I think um, – Oh, what street was South Street was so beautiful when you drove down there and all these families were out walking. So there was 33 homes that participated on South Street. And, um, you know, Santa was there along with direct mailbox to Santa. And uh, the last night they featured a snow machine, which I didn't know, but um, that would have been fun if I should have gotten my grandkids up here. 
But um, we just really appreciate everybody who donated to that and who and um, the, the proceeds from the Reindeer House Drive go to benefit our Teen Volunteer Health Profession Scholarship Fund for any teen that is pursuing a career in the medical field. And the scholarships are given, these teens, they, they have very strict criteria to be uh, eligible for the scholarship. So it's, it's not only that they're going into the medical field for their college, but it's also how many volunteer hours did they do, do how many, um, what was their grade point average, what other curricular activities have they done. It's really looking at the whole person, and then we give these scholarships to those people who um, go above and beyond meeting all that criteria. And so that money is very valuable. Um, I checked out the Reindeer House Drive with my wife and my daughter with my parents in tow and their vehicle behind us. We had a great time. And uh, I think that uh, that might have to become a tradition in the in the future too. In addition to the house walk, this house drive was a great idea. I, I agree with you. I thought it was so much fun and so beautiful, and and I'm sure the neighbors all appreciated it as well. You know, just a little cheer for everybody this year, which we need that extra cheer. <laughs> One last thing, uh, my podcast partner PK and I each want to give twenty five dollars to recognize our good friend Gail Robertson who is a nurse at uh, Elmhurst Memorial Hospital and uh, whose late husband, Bob, was our podcast partner. So uh, we'll be sending that uh, and signing up soon for that. Yeah, put both their names down, and we'll get them in the independence. Yes, Gail is an absolutely wonderful nurse, and Bob was a great person and truly is missed by all of us. Thanks so much, and appreciate your time today, Pam, and look forward to talking to you again soon. You too. Have a great, great week. Thank you. The E-Town Lowdown brought to you by the wonderful folks at the Elmhurst Armpit Orchestra featuring the biggest bass drum in the world at nine feet in diameter. Yes, you heard that right. Nine feet in diameter. This has been a special presentation of the E-Town Lowdown.